Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. New every Tuesday to Podcast One, Shenanigans with Sheena Shea from Vanderpump Rules. Now I'm living in a new city. I'm hanging with a new group of people. I have a new job. I'm in a different life. Mm -hmm. But watching back my old life from last year and my old apartment with my old boyfriend, like it just started to get to where I'm like, I'm very happy in Vegas. And I know I say I'm happy. I'm happy. I always say that the people don't even believe me anymore. (laughs) But you're like, you're like the girl who cried happy instead of the boy who cried. (laughs) (laughs) To hear more shenanigans with Sheena Shea, subscribe exclusively on Apple podcasts, podcast one.com and the new podcast one app. Don't forget to rate review and leave a five-star rating. And welcome to the Dr. Drew Podcast. Remember to check out uh, the Swing and Sounds. Uh, support the people that support the podcast. Keep the winds in the sail. The Corolla Pilot Chip. Uh, guys at Dr.com, the Hydrolite guys and the Bergamot guys are all guys I can stand by. And I strongly recommend the Hydrolite, something I wanted to invent myself. And now we've got it. So we're standing behind them. And uh, check out the family pods there. We've got the opioid um, sort of uh, chronicle there. We really go all the way back into prehistory and bring you forward with how the opiate problem developed uh, and you know how we got where we are. And a lot of people do not know that story. It's very involved, very complicated. And it's not what you think it is. It's not just Purdue Pharma. Though they were duplicitous, there is a much, much bigger story. And um, – yeah, check out the Family Pods, the YouTube page, the fa- the, uh, the Facebook page. And I want to get right to my guest, Dr. Perry Goatsey. She is a gynecologist, uh, obstetrician. You can follow her at Perry underscore MD. Perry, Perry right? I yeah, it's say Perry. Pari, P-A-R-I <laughs> underscore MD. Uh, Instagram at Dr. Perry and also the website is D-O-C, Dr. Spelled Out, Perry.com. Welcome. Thank you for joining me. It's going to be interesting. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, and you're doing hospitalist work right now? I am, uh, yes. And? And I really much enjoy it. I was in um, private practice for five years, and now I am an OB hospitalist. So I do 24-hour shifts and delivering a lot of babies, seeing people in the ER. So the uh, the American Society of Addiction Medicine puts out the journal, and they had a lead article that uh, included a topic that I've been yelling about for quite some time, which is the myth of the opiate-addicted baby. Mm. The myth that somehow that baby is going to become a drug addict, or somehow that outcome of that. Pre- it, and let me see if this is, fits your experience or your training. Which is my my training. Uh, opiate addiction impaired the pregnancy and imperiled the pregnancy. And we used to put people on methadone, and that straightened it all out. Uh, the babies would be addicted routinely, mm-hmm. and they would have two weeks of diarrhea, and that would be that. Mm-hmm. And it would be over, and they would have no higher incidence of anything else than any other baby with a mom with a history of addiction. Even if the mom has an alcoholic at age 50, it was about the same risk of that child developing addiction. Any other issues with the uh, – provided that the pregnancy went well? I think I think you're correct, you know, providing that the pregnancy went well. Yeah. And also you have to also – it's not opioids, yes, but then, you know, when it's... Oh, we're talking about opioids because yeah. unfortunately that is now adding to stigma. Mm. So people are being stigmatized from being opioid addicted during pregnancy. They're getting fe- you know, fearful that they're hurting their babies. And, you know, we have the first lady saying, oh, my whole thing is the, duh, the, duh, the babies, the babies. The babies are fine provided the pregnancy goes well. And if they come in and get proper care, it's not that hard to treat them during the pregnancy. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so uh, the you know this this all this stuff about addicted babies makes me insane. But you, stimulants a problem for exactly. sure. I'm with you on that. Mm-hmm. Although even those babies, we had a much greater concern about that back in the '90s. Uh, we would see a lot of uh, neuro uh, sort of physiological problems, but the kids would all catch up by first grade. Yeah, by first I, grade they pretty much catch up almost all the time. Right. I mean, there's also all the studies though about like long term behavioral differences and things like that. Which they haven't yet been able to parse that out from just having a mom who's a drug addict. And right. The, right. The ADHD of associated with trauma, which is another you know little discussed factor in ADHD and ADD. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So what what is keeping you up at night now? What are you worrying about in your patients? I mean, tons of things, right? Um, I really, you know, like why I'm here today uh, is to talk about HPV vaccine. That just keeps me up at night in terms of just so many myths that are out there. All the young women that I see that just have misconceptions of it, parents that have misconceptions of it um, in regards to vaccinating their children. So that's something that I, you know, am really passionate about talking about and wanting to talk about today. 
Yeah, I was vilified for years coming out in favor of that. The, the, all the, for some reason, the it wasn't even the anti-vaxxers. It was some other group got behind it saying, oh, it's going to cause neurological problems, all this stuff. It is the safest – has the safest profile of any vaccine in history. Mm-hmm. And it's deployed internationally, mandated in most countries mm-hmm. because it prevents cancer. Exactly. It's it, the most bizarre thing in the world. Do you, do you want people to get cancer? It has almost zero adverse effects. Exactly. And it, it blows my mind, first of all, like how there's this big misconception of all the side effects. When you look at the side effects, they're, it's so minimal. It's the same as having any other shot Redness at the site, maybe a little bit of inflammation. It's like B twelve, like a B twelve yeah, injection. Oh, which people are lining up yeah, to do. That's ridiculous. But and, then, but then, I was going to say, but then we have a vaccine that can actually prevent pre- cancer. Prevents cancer, twenty thousand deaths. I what are we? What is the matter with us as a country? It's bizarre. And then I, I had a crazy experience where we give it at age nine to twelve, and by men and women, males and women. And by the way, I believe if people are over the age of 28, which is the the, the recommended age is what, 8 26, to 28? 26, 26 now. Yeah. If you're 40 and you're sexually active, uh, find an enlightened doctor. There's no reason you can't take it. It's I, just yeah. – it's the FDA. Just, they, they spent the money to approve it in the window and it's most likely to be efficacious. If I were a 50-year-old sexually active dude with more than one partner – I would take the vaccine. Yeah, no same. Exactly. Yeah. And actually, you know, in other countries like Australia, for instance, they recommend it up to 45 because like, that's when they did their sense. studies. Yeah. So I always tell people if you, you know, are past that age, you're still sexually active or you even have the interest in getting it because you think maybe sometime later in your life you may become sexually active again, get it. Yeah. The only problem is you're going to have to pay out of pocket for it. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. But, How much is it out of pocket? I, um, I think it's around $600 yeah, usually. So um, For both the series? Yeah, for yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. Total. It's a three part. It's a three year? Well, the most recent one's now two parts. Two parts, okay. Yeah, two parts. Uh, and then the crazy story I was going to tell you is that it's recommended for, you know, sort of preteen age because that's when it is most efficacious. Mm-hmm. That's why it's recommended from that age group. It's not recommended because we expect your child to go out and have sex or that they will go out and be wildly sexually active because they had a goddamn vaccine. But I had a pediatrician look at me in the eye and go, we're making it too easy for them today. Oh it's a my pediatrician. Gosh. I was shocked. I was shocked. And um, but when the pediatricians uh, told me that I, they, my kids could have vaccines, I gave it to them myself. I couldn't give it to them fast enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's one of the things that really irks me is this idea that it's going to increase sexual activity or cause someone to have sexual activity there's at zero, a younger age. Zero evidence. There's zero evidence. There's, they've been doing studies now. There's been studies that have come out in the American Pediatric Association this past year saying that they've looked at it and it does not at all increase, you know, Look, if you want to follow that logic, hepatitis B is a sexually transmitted disease. Your child gets hepatitis B vaccine at age one. Does that mean they're (laughs) going to start having earlier sexual activity? It's the most bizarre logic on earth. And the kids don't know what vaccines they're going to get. It's the parent's decision. I used to always joke. I was like, it's not an aphrodisiac. It's an, it's a vaccine. <laughs> it's so – oh, it's, my God. It makes me crazy. But for – you were you must – you're probably too young to have fought it out when it really was bad. Mm-hmm. When there, I, I, I mean, it was just the most – I remember that and the, and the uh, emergency contraceptive were the two things, yeah. two battles I had for mm-hmm. a decade. And uh, people refused to – because we're doing such a bad job of educating people on science and particularly biology – they don't even know what they're talking about. Right. So they can have all these fantasies about it. Right. Well, and now everyone, you know, I hate to say it, but becomes an expert with just a little bit of information that they read on the internet from a friend or, you know, it's it's people, you're right. It's like they're not basing it on science. And if you go back to the science, science will tell you what's correct. That's it. We're, we're objective. We're just, what what is the what are the facts? What's the evidence? What's the evidence? That's it. Uh so yes, I'm with you completely with the HPV vaccine. It, ma- it makes me, <laughs> and and if other if you're within the age categories for which it is formally recommended in this country, insurances pay for it, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. insurance pays for it. Yeah. Um, anything commonly you're seeing these days uh, on the gynecology or obstetrical front? Any sort of trends that we should be aware of? Or, hmm, good question. Yeah. Um, I think you know. Unfortunately, there's I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's a rise in syphilis. 
Oh, yeah. Which we haven't seen for years and years and yeah, years. It comes, it comes yeah. and goes. I mean, for me, it's new. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I haven't been around long enough to where I've seen yeah. the trend up again. Yeah. For me, it was something that was laying pretty dormant for a long time. Yeah. So that's been something that's been interesting to see. And we're you know now going back to testing it in all pregnant women, which we, we weren't necessarily before. So God, I remember a day when back when I was first trained. We everyone that was admitted to a hospital got a VDRL. Back yeah, then. yeah, yeah. So yeah, we don't do it as often. Um, so yeah, so that's been interesting to kind of see that rise and um, take note of that. Gynecology wise, I always am reading about some trend in the news or magazine of something to do weird to your vagina. With. Some reconstruction or <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah, reconstruction or also these little things like, oh, this month we're going to put glitter in it or we're going to, I mean, weird bedazzle. things. Yeah, bedazzle. I'm all, and, you know, there's always a celebrity that's promoting something to do with your vagina or put an egg in it or, I mean, it sounds silly, but that is what I'm always seeing. And every month I'm like trying to fight against that. I'm like, please don't do that. How about in terms of surgical um, contraception? Are you guys doing much that way these days? Um, in terms of like Surgi- tying your tubes and yeah. stuff? Yeah. 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 We still we still see do that pretty routinely. Um, in more recent years, there's been something where it's surgical, but it's office-based where you can go in with, with, with what is called a hysteroscope, where you go in Put through your cervix in. and yeah, and then plug it through the tubes that way. Um, that's a good way of permanently doing it. But, you know, like I'm actually a big proponent for longer term contraception like IUDs or the implant that goes in your arm because people don't realize it, but those are actually more effective than tying your tubes permanently when they're done correctly and they're reversible. You know, one of the criticisms I've had of gynecologists over the years is they were very enthusiastic about the uh, progesterone contraceptives. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly the the uh, what was the shot called? I mean, I can't remember what it was. The, Depo-Provera. Uh, the Depo-Provera. Mm-hmm. Uh and the the very low dose estrogens and the high potency uh, progesterones, and the effect it had on women's mood and libido. Mm-hmm. They were not discussing it at all with mm-hmm. women, and I was mm-hmm. seeing just tons of women with depression, irritability, sleep disturbances, and no sex drive. Hmm. Yeah, there's a certain population who have an increase in their sex right. Drive exactly, from it. that's the thing. But it's no one discussed with them even any the of these possibility. possibilities. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. That's something that you always have to discuss with patients when it comes to hormones. Is you know you don't know exactly how it's going to affect you, and so you just kind of have to try and take note of it, but always report back. You know, I always use you know tell my patients. If we start something new, make an appointment with me in another month or two months, and then let's just see how it's going for you. Gary, uh, Gary, I did that. Remember that Andrew Goldstein? I did way long ago. He's a gynecologist. I know him. Yeah. yeah. He actually, I went to GW for residency and he. That's where he practices. He practices out there. And, yeah. And he has this uh, way of assessing the, essentially the length of the estrogen receptor and certain mm-hmm. ones are more prone to being sort of suppressed or reabsorbed by progesterone stimulation. Mm-hmm. And it's those women that were getting – so you can measure something to determine who's the one likely to get the suppression of libido. And a certain percentage of the women he was noticing – it's podcast episode 7 and 39 under the podcast1.com slash premium. It was one of the early podcasts I did with him. And he was saying – uh, a significant percentage have permanent libido alterations mm-hmm. uh, with this shorter uh, estrogen receptor. Yeah, I've read yeah. about some of that, and its yeah. effect as well on lubrication, the vagina, yeah. and all of so that. So it just—I I wish gynecologists would discuss that more, com- more regularly, routinely with their patients because they then they call me and call here, and I'm like, oh, sure. right. Yeah, there's a lot of factors that are playing a role, and and that's what's unfortunate. Is a lot of times they call in because they're thinking it's psychological or they think it's relationship oriented. They always do an inventory on themselves, right? And the last yeah. thing they think of is the pharmacology, yeah. which is. They should always think of that first. Right. Especially, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Especially, Sorry. please. I was just saying, especially if not just, you know, birth control, but if there's been any sort of medication that's been introduced, you know, and you're having a change in your sexual function or libido, yes. you should look at that. And I would argue as an internist, you know, I, I spent, you know, many years evaluating patients. In, I was doing medical evaluations in a psychiatric hospital. Any of medical or whatever untowards effect you're having, I promise you it's the medicine. I mean, 95% it's the medicine. If you're on a medicine and something happens to you, think medicine first. Always, right. always, always. Especially if you're on a high dose of something or you're on a mm-hmm. moderate dose of something. Uh, I'm looking at questions up there. Uh, I think we're going to try to stay with medical calls there, Gary. <laughs> we'll talk about McCarthyism, uh, if you don't mind. Uh 
let's let, let's talk about an interpersonal problem. Maybe you made stuff you may deal with in your practice a little bit. Uh, Drew from Kentucky, go ahead there. Hey, maybe I've got the wrong line up. Drew, there you are. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, there we go. Okay, yeah, thanks for taking my call. You bet. Um, been married. I've been married for almost seventeen years. There's been uh, no infidelity, no uh, physical abuse. Uh, I did have a drinking problem last uh, summer. My wife just recently filed for divorce, and we have three children. Mm-hmm. And um, we were very, you know, amicable just before she filed. Um, but this has been about eight weeks ago, and we've not had a, a conversation since. Um, she asked for a mutual restraining order, and we cannot even have a conversation. Of course, I want to, and I, I want to work things out. Um, what's your question, and, what's your question she, for us? How, how, do you have any advice on how to work things out uh, when we, we are, actually we are cannot missing, even communicate? We are missing information here. There's, there's more to be revealed than you evidently know, and I'm not sure what it is. Either your perceptions of your minor little drinking problem last summer is perhaps a minimization of what actually happened, or maybe okay. maybe some behaviors developed during that time or since that really bothered her more than you knew, or maybe there's somebody else that you, again, there's something missing. Her experience okay. is not being properly represented here, and you need to find out what her experience has been that motivated all this. I'm sorry that she won't talk to you. Who's Who's got the kids? Uh, well, we've got joint standard, and so we just swap them back and forth, unfortunately. But, but you don't talk to her at all during those swaps? N- n- not at all. We, mm. she, uh, we're not even allowed to, to speak face-to-face. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's, yeah. you, know, you must deal with a lot of interpersonal stuff. Too. I know you're mostly a hospitalist, but any advice for him? Um, well, I was just going to ask if there was any sort of third party that's facilitating anything with you guys, whether it be a therapist or someone who's overhanding custody, if they had any insight for you. Uh, unfortunately, it's just lawyers. I have tried to get therapists involved, but she has refused, and so it's just the the legal system right now. So there's no real advice other than just legal advice. You know, I'm sorry, Drew. There's just something missing here, and you you deserve an explanation. I would say, and mm-hmm. I'm sorry that whenever families are broken up and the kids are involved, it's you know they've start to included divorce and single parent in the adverse childhood experiences scale, so it, it measurably affects the uh, the development of the children. And people need to be aware. They need to be thinking about that when they make big decisions like this. Um, let's keep taking. Let's. I'm looking at some calls. These are all sort of. Oh boy. Okay. I'm going to wait on these a few minutes. Um, surgically, are are there? Are you spending most of your time just obstetrically? Or are there other surgery, surgeries of infections? What, what kinds of stuff are you having to do surgeries for typically? Tumors? Well, yeah. When I'm in the hospital, it's things that are coming through the ER. So it's a, sometimes like ovarian torsion, which if, for people that don't know, that's when you get a large ovarian cyst. It twists on itself, and then you start to lose blood supply to that ovary. That's one thing. Or big ruptured ovarian cysts. We see, um, unfortunately, miscarriages. Do, do you operate on ruptured cysts? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes. It depends. Okay. Most of the time you don't because it's something that will just resolve on its yeah. own. I tell people, you know, go home, take I'm Advil. I'm stunned how often they used to do operations on the ovarian cysts. That yeah. was bizarre. No, we try not to. With that said, like, for instance, this past week uh, I had a patient we did have to operate on, and that's only because it had ruptured and it was bleeding. And then we could see that she was bleeding internally. Her blood count was dropping. Okay. So that's someone that you're going to yeah. obviously have to take to the operating room. Yeah. Um, so sometimes those show up. And uh, I, you said it was, you know, sort of uh, isolated cysts, simple cysts. It mm-hmm. makes me think also about polycystic ovarian syndrome. There's a lot of ink being spilled on that these days. Anything new going on there? Well, I think you know it's a it was always it's always been a good topic of mine to talk about, only because I feel like it has become something that is a quote trash can diagnosis. Where don't as- say trash can. I said that once. I I had somebody <laughs> I I had somebody call in here. They don't know. People don't know what you mean. Okay, they, I'm gonna explain think, it. I'm gonna they, explain they it. think you they think you mean that we're calling PCOS a trash can diagnosis. Okay. What we're saying is. When doctors begin to throw things into the trash can, they're very likely to throw that diagnosis into the trash can, not because it's not a serious disease, not because it doesn't cause all kinds of disability and pain. It's the doctor behavior we're talking about. 
I was I had a call with a guy, mm-hmm. and uh, he goes, "Well, my girlfriend she's got interstitial cystitis and endometriosis and polycystic ovaries." And she, he named like four different diagnoses. I go, "Look, instead of all these trash can diagnoses, why don't you also ask whether there's been some sexual trauma?" Yes, I was sexually abused. Okay, well maybe somebody ought to look there. You called endometriosis a trash can diagnosis. I, I to this day, mm-hmm. that was probably six years ago. I still hear about it. Well, thank you. So don't thank you, thank you, Doctor Drew, the, for yeah, doctors throwing that into a trash can because they don't know what to put in the trash right. can. So they'll grab for PCOS and throw it in the trash can. Exactly. So, so. that's what I'm trying to say is that. A lot of times when people have symptoms that are similar, for instance, they're just not having a cycle, then it's they get really quickly diagnosed as, oh, you're PCOS. Do, do they do by ultrasound? Do they just they You know, clinical? sometimes I, I've seen so many patients that have come to me that said, I'm PCOS, and then I look at what the diagnostic criteria was, and they just weren't meeting it. What are the criteria usually? So it's going to be missing periods mm. or less periods, an increase of testosterone, mm. either physically where you're having like hair growth or you see it in the blood work. What, is there a number there on that? Um, I that's actually such a, don't. It's yeah, such a broad it's range. It's just above what the normal range is for okay. a female. I can't remember the okay, number exactly right now. Um, and then, and or seeing what looks to be polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound. And you need two out of three of those criteria. And a lot of times what you'll see is someone come in that just wasn't having periods and someone will just say, oh, you're PCOS. That's crazy. It's we, so, we used it to always all the time. It used to be ultrasound and mm-hmm. multiple same size cysts. Right. Because you can have multiple cysts that are luteal cysts. Exactly. It's a very classic appearance, yeah. you know, where it's like a grapes basically going around. The right. ovary. It's not even someone who just makes a lot of cysts. A lot right. of times people are confused with that too. They're like, oh, I have a cyst every month. No. I'm PCOS. No, it's no, like, no. no, that's not how it works. So it's over. That's what I thought it was being overdiagnosed. It definitely. Or is. anybody that has pelvic pain that's unexplained, they'll sort of throw throw that in the garbage bag. Mm-hmm. Th- right. The doctor throws it in the garbage right. bag, not because it's a garbage bag diagnosis. Exactly. Oh, so, yeah. So that's one that, you know, I, I feel like definitely gets overdiagnosed. And a lot of, there's a lot of other reasons why people are, you know, missing their cycle and it needs to be investigated. Questions need to be asked. All the laboratory tests need to be performed as God, opposed to days, just labeling somebody. These days, opiates have got to be figured in there very prominently. Mm-hmm. Somebody say, or even pot can do that. Right. Yeah. Anything, yeah. anything that affects the endorphin system can affect the dopamine mm-hmm. release in the pituitary. And it's important for long-term implications, too, because people that have PCOS, they do suffer from infertility. They're at increased risk for miscarriage. They're increased risk for diabetes later in their life, also during pregnancy. So if you get that label, it really has a lot of implications. So you want to make sure that the diagnosis is correct. How about the use of uh, treatment for insulin resistance with PCOS? Because I've seen people like thin women who are athletic and healthy being being put on metformin. Uh, metformin, and stuff. yeah. yeah. It, it, it does work, though, actually, if you truly are PCOS, even if you're thin. And that's actually one of the misconceptions. And it works for what? Um, so the whole process does work with insulin receptors. That's what's throwing off the hormones on the ovaries. I so see. it does help. Um, and that's one of the misconceptions is that if you're skinny, you can't be PCOS. And that's not true. No, I've seen definitely seen skinny PCOS. Right. But I always wonder why they were putting the thin PCOS patients on metformin. And then telling them it's because of insulin resistance, not explaining the insulin resistance is affecting the ovarian cyst. Right. Yeah. Crazy. It's, yeah. it's interesting stuff. And so actually that's one of the fertility treatments for it is if you have PCOS and you're having trouble getting pregnant, metformin, there have been many, many studies that have helped with fertility even if you're not using uh, classic fertility drugs. Do you have a favorite treatment for endometriosis now? I mean, I think still first line, I just go straight to birth control, just first line, because it's the easiest, it's the lowest side effect. And I think that's what's most important is that you kind of start with medications that have the lowest side effect and move up, leaving surgery as a last case scenario. I hate to see when young people have endometriosis and they've been operated on 20 times. Um, that just has to so me, that many. Just, I just always think, oh, sexual trauma. Um, yeah, well, are gynecologists asking that question these days? They, I mean, I always do. I always think when people have pelvic pain, chronic pelvic pain, unexplained. that's the f- unexplained. unexplained. Yes. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. Yeah. Um, and it's you know, it's do you know there's a whole theoretical framework now for how that happens? What the pain is from several sort of in the Alan Shore and Peter Fonagy world where it's essentially what's called somatoform dissociation. Just when trauma, we also dissociate from our feelings. Mm -hmm. We can dissociate from the body in such a way that information coming out of 
whatever the traumatized reason was, is disorganized and overwhelming and hits up in the insular cortex, triggering misery, even though the somatic component may be just a confused bundle. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's a very, very interesting. When you're looking to buy a car, you want to make sure you're getting real pricing on actual inventory. A lot of times that is not the case. People configure cars online only later to find out they are not available. Not with True Car. Of course, I'm talking about True Car. You get real pricing on actual inventory. This is not pricing offered by True Car, but pricing from an actual dealer. And not just any dealer, but a True Car certified dealer. This is a carefully curated network of dealers committed to transparency and offering you a competitive market price. Yeah, you know, and we talk about it all the time. Using True Car, you can easily find the car you want. Next, True Car, TrueCar.com or True Car app will show you what other people in your area paid for the same car you're looking for. Now you know what a fair price is, so you can feel confident. Over 3 million cars have been sold to True Car users by the True Car Certified Dealer Network. Over 3,000 True Car Certified Dealers are available nationwide. You will get to work directly with a True Car Certified Dealer that you may contact with. And True Car users are more likely to enjoy a faster, better buying experience when they contact a True Car Certified Dealer. And on average, you can expect to save over $3,000 off MSRP. Once you register, you'll see a real price on actual inventory. Hook up with that True Car certified dealer. Have a better buying experience. True Car, go to the truecar.com or True Car app. Do what I'm telling you. Let me take another call here. This is something you can probably help, help me with too. Uh, Angie? Angie? Angie. Angie, there you are. It looks like an L up there. I almost said angle. Uh, what's going on? <laughs> Hi. So hey. uh, I'm... 43 years old. My question is, is about getting off Zoloft. Mm. Um, I'm 43 years old. I had my first baby last year, um, nine months ago, so I was 42. And um, I suffered from uh, postpartum depression, but mainly um, DEMER, so dysphoric milk ejection reflex, because I'm Oh, breastfeeding. my gosh. Tell us about that. That's fascinating. Oh, it was the worst. It was the worst thing I've ever like been through in my life. Explain. I, I'm I my um, I many of my family members suffered from depression. I kind of know what that's like. I personally have never um, suffered from depression. Um, but so what would happen was when I would when my milk would let down for for about fifteen seconds, I would just feel the greatest sense of doom I've ever felt in my life. Like, I felt like the world was going to end. And I wanted it to. Like, I was like, and it took my breath away. I couldn't breathe. It felt like, um, you know, like if you get hit in the back and you can't breathe for a second, that's what it felt like. And it was, oh, it was just, it was was horrible. Like, I, I didn't, I'd never heard of it before. So I didn't know what was going on at all. And the Zoloft helped? Yes, okay. completely flipped everything around. Do you, like I, do you think you also had a postpartum depression? I think so. Yes, okay. they didn't say that I had it, but I just is that usual. Like, it, looking at my yeah, looking at my mindset now compared to you know six months ago, yeah, complete different. Um, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, great. So, good. Good. Well done. You got you know yes. biological problem, biological treatment, and uh, it's yes. it's very striking when the treatments work. Uh, and now the Zoloft what? So uh, I'm still breastfeeding, and I'm coming towards the end of the prescription of the Zoloft, mm. and um, I don't have insurance, so mm. I can't really afford to uh, go find a doctor, see if they'll prescribe it for me again if I really need it. Um, but I will do it if I, I if I'm going to have like some super ad- adverse, you know. Reaction okay, to, hold to on. getting so, off. So hold on. So it's a little complicated. Uh, if you, so you need a prescription more than the money to pay for the medicine, right? Um, right. Well, don't I mean, you I'll, think I'll, if she were to call, how old's the baby? He's nine and a half months. Do you think if she were to call her doctor and say I need a refill, yeah, get a refill? So <laughs> you, so it's that. Yeah, I was confused on that too. So yeah. it's that the doctor won't give you another uh, prescription or, for it. Yep. So the prescription that I got was from the OB doctor. Okay. Um, oh, and, and now you've enough. moved on. Call back to the yeah, OB. She, call back. Call back she, to the OB. Call back and say okay. I, I need a refill. And yeah, you don't okay. have to see them. Go get a refill, and then when you go, get the generic, and it'll be shouldn't be very expensive at all. Right. Yeah, yeah I would call your OB. Not. Call your okay, OB. Said, they, 
Please do that. They told me, okay, I'll try it. They told me, though, they were like, from here, you need to go find a regular doctor, and they'll they'll continue a, a script for the Zoloft if you need it. Well, I think you have so, to make an appeal on compassionate basis to for them to please. Okay. Yeah, after 12 months, I mean, you should at minimum be on it for 12 months, okay. in, my, in my humble opinion. Uh, or some doctors should make that determination how long. Uh, you are at a high risk of a relapse of depression, right? You're at higher risk than average, and you've said you've got the genetic heritage, and now you've had this. So, yes. so depression, you know, you're the kind of person that you really want to be followed very, very carefully. And Zoloft can have a little withdrawal syndrome. It's not like a benzo. It's not like a Valium withdrawal or an alcohol withdrawal. It's kind of a weird buzzing and electrical feeling in your head and neck, and it can be very unpleasant. It's not everyone mm-hmm. that gets it, but when they do, yeah. it's unpleasant. So you want to taper down if you're going to stop. Right. So that needs to be kind of managed too. Okay. Well, and okay. also the concern is that if it's been associated for you with this breastfeeding and, and you're, you're still, still breastfeeding, breastfeeding yeah. then don't get off yeah. of yeah, it. It's going to keep yeah. happening. There's no reason it wouldn't. Okay. Okay. That was yeah. I didn't know if if that was going to be if that was a you know possibility as well because oh, I'm yeah. still breastfeeding and I don't uh, want to. We, we would both obviously pre- I don't want to go back to we that. We would both <laughs> predict that the postpartum would be at high risk of occurrence and mm-hmm. the breastfeeding the what you call it, I forget the acronym D- Demer. 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 Yeah. The Demer will recur. I would predict very strongly that would be a likely thing. Okay. Okay. All right. That's All right. what I need to know. Great question. Thanks, Andrew. Good luck. Yep. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Thanks. See, that's an interesting question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you were a psychology major in uh, in uh, college. Do you I still was. do much of that kind of stuff with your patients? I think as an OB, you're kind of always doing psychology. Right. right. And so I was going to ask you is uh, domestic violence. Is that something you're having to contend with now? What do you? What, yeah, what? of course. We see it all the time. Yeah. Um, and it's especially in, in pregnancy, unfortunately, that's when women become higher risk for it. Mm-hmm. Be, a lot of people don't realize that, but women become vulnerable and uh, when they're pregnant. And unfortunately, people that are abusers and attackers know that and their risk goes up. So it's something you really got to look out for. Do you have a f- sort of uh, protocol for intervening or a level at which you intervene aggressively? Well, I mean, if you start to see signs, obviously you start to ask questions and then you, you know, go through the appropriate channels, a social worker, uh, where we can refer the patient and things that we need to do. If it's in the hospital setting and there's some um, threat at all of any sort of abuse, then we even call security and, and, then, then, and it, then go from there. And certain social services get involved. Exactly. The idea is to separate them, separate, separate, exactly. separate. That, that, exactly. That's the intervention number one, two, and mm-hmm. three. Has has the Me Too movement at all affected? Do gynecology have an opinion about this? Are they, are they getting involved with it? Because it, it's got to be changing interpersonal health, sexual health, that kind of thing. I think, you know, I well, I was going to say, when you first said it, I was thinking as a physician, I was like, oh, do you mean as a female doctor, as a gynecologist? Well, I've I actually, mean, all of that. All of it, please. I've actually seen a lot of rise in that. I don't know if you've seen, there's been a well, lot of articles now where, like, people in the medical profession are saying, hey, we're Me Too people. Also, we've been treated unfairly in certain ways. I personally haven't had any experiences like that. I've been fortunate where I don't feel like I'm someone who's who's been... Um, had prejudice against as a female necessarily. I've never even seen that. I I haven't seen it, but it's out there. I'm sure it's out there. Even, you know, it's in any sort of... I remember being rough when I was a chief resident, being very, very rough, and the women would react more strongly to me when I was being what I thought was a good teacher. Well, I was going to say anytime there's a hierarchy of any kind, which medicine has a very clear hierarchy for people that don't know in training. It's like a military system. It's like a military system. So anytime there's that, there's going to be different power levels. And obviously that could come into play. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, I didn't have any personal experience with, with it. So... Um, in terms of busy, we're too busy to get. And I'm like, maybe I didn't. I didn't notice (laughs) because I didn't care. I had to go to sleep. Yeah, (laughs) right. It's busy. It makes it impossible. Yeah, but I know it's out there. And in terms of patience, you know, I don't. I haven't necessarily been seeing anything more. I just think that the 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 the, how women and men navigate is going to change. I'm not quite sure what it's going to be, but I think I feel like it's going in a healthier direction. That that women aren't there was a little bit of a Stockholm syndrome going on for a while where women were signed on to being like a seventeen year old male or equal, and now we're saying nah, it didn't work for me. I'm pissed. <laughs> Why? Right. And that that didn't work out. And uh, let, let me just start to pay attention to my own instinctive uh, experiences rather than supplementing them. Mm-hmm. For I, sure. I think it's going to just. I don't know. It's going to change. I, I think that's a good thing. That's a piece of this Me Too story we haven't really. 
heard about in the press. And I, I just think there's going to be a social change. There's definitely going to be a social yeah. change. And I think people are going to just start speaking out more in all different types of prejudices and abuse. And I'm mm-hmm. sure that will play a role as patients come and talk to their doctors about some of these things. Any, any culturally sensitive issues you've had to deal with? Is there anything, again, I'm just thinking about challenges as a gynecologist. Are there anything weird that you've had to pay attention to as our world becomes smaller and smaller? No. I mean, are the female genital mutilation, is that something you come up with? Oh, yeah. I don't see it as much anymore. But when I was a resident, like I said, I actually trained out in D.C., and I saw a lot of it, a well, lot and, of it. And it's it. a whole lot of different things, right? Yeah, there's different categories, yeah. different stages to it. And what was really unfortunate is these women would come, they would have had female circumcision, which a lot of times their labia is completely sewn together. There's not much of an introitus, which is, for those listening, the, the hole into your vagina, and they would need to have a baby. And after, you know, they have a baby, obviously that's going to be torn and they would want us to repair it. Put it back? Yeah. So that would put us at a very, you know, an ethical dilemma because to them, culturally, it's important to have it closed like that. Oh, my God. That's the way that they were raised. They're coming from different, you know, countries in Africa. So they would want us to put things back together that way. And we would just have to say no as a as Americans and as physicians, we don't think that's what's best for you. So that was really interesting to see how someone could have something done to them that is really physical abuse and trauma and then want it to be see, corrected. I, I think women are, are they, we, women have a higher, uh, when you look at them psychologically on the sort of uh, personality characteristics, they're higher in the agreeable on a scale. They're more cooperative. They're more likely to be feel responsible if something goes wrong. Uh, that's just fact. Uh, and I think that makes them more likely to sort of, I don't know how else to say this, is be, be a participant in a Stockholm syndrome type situation. They get themselves into thinking that's just the way it is. And if I have a problem with it, the problem is me, not the mm-hmm. practice. Mm-hmm. And that, that breaks my heart when women do that. that that's what I think has been happening in the interpersonal sphere too, which is why the Me Too, I think, is a, a breakout from that. You know, as women breaking away from that kind of Stockholm thinking, which I think is great. Do you agree with me? I, I definitely agree with you. I think there's there's so much truth in that. Even you know, in situations that aren't harmful, women tend to be more agreeable, and a lot of times that's a positive thing because it's they're easier to get along with. They have more friends. They're more social, and mm-hmm. that's the great part of being agreeable. But like you're saying. It also lends to them being hurt, taken advantage of, manipulated. I really, I really think it's like being like in a domestic violence situation. Mm-hmm. That to me is a cult of two where the woman is taking on the Stockholm syndrome of the abuser. And the same thing in the other side of this too is in the workplace if they're trying to you know uh, make a go in some big corporate structure. Agreeableness may not work so well. They've got to be disagreeable a lot of the time. We need to support women in, in being that way if they, right. that's what they want to do. Well, and a lot of that is it's society, right? Society, you know. No, it turns out it's not. It turns out it's something about your double X chromosome. You the, think? The, see, it, I think if we can change the way that we look as a society. I, I, I don't, all, look, it doesn't really matter. It just should be changed, exactly. right? Exactly. And so yeah. – but there, there clearly are these persistent in all societies across all spectrum, mm-hmm. the same change that this agreeableness scales there every, everywhere. In all societies, under all circumstances, right. So that's biology, then, right? Mm, or there's this commonality amongst all societies that we. If you have, do you have children? No. Okay. You're like, wait till you have a grown y- a boy. Y- yes, it's uh, is you can't. You can spend your entire day trying to work on whatever is innate in their biology, and you will not change it. You will not change it. Uh, we because we had triplets, so we had mm-hmm. boys and girls all at once, and we worked hard at trying to to make everybody the same. No way, no way. I mean, from the second they came out of the womb. I mean, we had at age one, we took them to a toy store. My daughter goes to the boas and the and the, the sparkly stuff. My boys went to the hammers and the trains, and we couldn't pull one to the other. Right. Could no, not. I totally agree Could with that. Not. I totally and agree that so there are – So there's lots of stuff like that that right. you see when you're raising kids right. that is just like that is definitely in, in them. Right. No, and I agree there's obviously like feminine and masculine traits and I don't think everyone's the same. There's a reason why there are different sexes. I'm just wondering if those qualities are ones that you're born with or are those the agreeableness, the more likely to be abused, those kind of things are more societal-based. I guess well, the we'll... more likely to be abused, that's societal-based, right? Yeah, yeah. That's for sure. But but the agreeableness seems to be across everything. And 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 listen, just because you have a certain – like I said, just because just there's a proclivity. First of all, I think we've got to be very honest and very clear about it if it's there. 
there and then mm-hmm. fight against it, compensate right. for it, to you know, raise women. That's what society can do is <laughs> to deal with the biology in a proactive way. Right. Yeah. I mean, we can say women are more agreeable, but that doesn't mean that we have to take advantage of their agreeableness. No, it means that you know? we, either, we have a choice. Either businesses need to be more agreeable in terms right. of how they run their hierarchy right. – or we need to coach women up to be more disagreeable in situations where they want to assert themselves. Yes. Yeah. One or, one or the other. Yeah. That's what society can do. Let's see. Taking some calls here. This is Will. You there? Hi, man. Will in Minneapolis. Oh, hello. Hey there. Hey, how's it going? What's up? Sorry. Um, yeah, I was just calling about a problem I'm having. Thanks for taking my call. You bet. Um, so basically. Um, situation I'm dealing with is a evil stepmom type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad and mom got divorced about uh, a year ago. I'm 29, so I'm like, you know, full-grown adult, you know, got my own life going and everything. But uh, my dad started dating this new woman, and there was kind of problems right away. And uh, just little things, she would kind of make comments a lot right off the bat, but then uh, kind of all came to a head when uh, my dad hosted his annual Final Four party about a year ago, you know, NCAA basketball tournament and whatnot. Well, well, yeah, I'm wondering what your question is. How can we help? Oh, sorry. Sorry, I'm just getting set up here. What's, um, the, what's the question? Basically, um, brought my, uh, my my dog to the party of the house I grew up in, and uh, she kind of, like, put the foot down and kicked me out of my own house that I, I grew up in, and it's uh, been really strained ever since, so it's just a... Uh, I don't know. It's kind of a long story short. I can give more details if you need. But you're, not, you're not living at home. No, no, no. I live. I live in Minneapolis, about an hour away from where they're. My Why don't you and your dad go hang out and uh, see what's going on in his head? Oh, I did. And he's very, very passive. He's just kind of like seeds to her at all times. What did he say when you said, "I'm upset. This I've been kicked out of my own house. This is uh, not even my own mom." What did he say? He was like, yeah, you know, you're right, but, uh, you know, I'm kind of sorry. I don't know. I messed up, but then hasn't really done anything to rectify he said, I He said, I messed up? Yeah, like, I should have taken your side. I should have stuck up for you. Oh, he's just, he thinks you're just talking about that one situation. You yeah. need You need to I, tell I, him generally you're unhappy and you need to, just, you know, you need his support. And yeah, I did he, that. And? and? He'll kind of just, he's not really able to. He's kind of saying, like, yeah, you're right, you're right, but doesn't really ever do anything about it. Any suggestions? Have you talked to her? What's her um, reasoning for kicking you out? Well, we did kind of have one sit down, the three of us, at one point. It kind of tension grew so much that we had to talk it out. And she just is, it's like a kind of an after school special cookie cutter, just evil, like, kind of, I can't even, like, describe what she was doing. Just, you, you know, let, let me assure like, you, you are not describing it, so we don't understand what you're talking okay. about. <laughs> Sorry. She's just kind of like, uh, you know, I, I can't believe you would bring, you know, your dog to someone else's house without asking. Um, I can't. You're, you're being abusive to your father by making him choose between me and you. Yada, yada, yada. She's not, she's not wrong. So it's centered around the, the dog. Yeah. Well, in that situation, yeah. What do you do for a living? I mean, I'm a substitute teacher. Okay. Uh, my prediction is, and I, I again, I'm just guessing, is that this is going to kind of blow over. That's my prediction. If you're going to be an adult here you're, and not a passive child who is worrying about his mommy and his house of origin, which is not his. It's, it's theirs. It is not your house. Even though you grew up there, it is not yours. And let's be an adult here. You, you teach kids. You want to be a role model to other people. Be an adult. Keep hashing it out with everybody. Be Do what you need to do to be a good son, even though realizing you will not get a great relationship with your stepmom, it sounds like. That's the way it goes. He married someone who's not going to be very, very particularly a great stepmom to you. You can still be a good son because that's the right thing to do. How's that sound? I think that sounds good. Yeah. And I was also going to say just – you know, it is like Dr. Drew said; it is their home. So if they have certain rules, maybe That's, one rule is not bring the pet in the yeah, home. You and, have to respect that and rule. By the way, if you still have a room at that house, don't take it down, dismantle it, and take it all into your, your house and form a family of your own and a life of your own. Don't worry about him so much. Uh, Christine, go ahead. Hi. Hey there. Hi. Um, I was actually 
wondering, and I came in part way, so I'm thinking that there's a hospitalist on with us as well. I got, I got a, yeah, OBGYN. It's an OBGYN yeah. hospitalist. Okay, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Okay, so. That's okay. My cousin, um, he's an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. He is dying of cirrhosis. He has less than 10% liver function. Mm-hmm. He's 38 years old. Mm-hmm. He drank and had a 0.427 blood alcohol level. Good times. I, Good times. I know. I got him out of the car. I got him to the hospital. I stayed with him there about 14 hours until I had to go home. And they waited, of course, for him to speak to someone till his blood alcohol level went down. And um, by that time, I mean, he was violent, abusive, talking about how he couldn't wait to die by the end of the night. And there was police there and everything. And they let him go home oh my when he sobered up. That's crazy. And I'm just curious. That was his third visit. And I, I was the third but relative. You, you, let me just say, <laughs> Christine, this, this is why we have homelessness. This is why we have the guy shooting up Florida. Because there's an intermediate zone where mental health professionals and doctors can't do anything. We can't force people to get care if they don't want it. You're... you're cousin needs to go to a psychiatric hospital. I think an enlightened psychiatrist would put him on a hold. Maybe if he sobers up enough, they can get through to him, get him sober, and get a liver transplant. And let's get this thing going. Uh, but yeah. it's not an ER. you got to get him to a psychiatric hospital. To an actual psych. See, that's what we were hoping they would do at that point. Yeah, they whatever can't reason. get him anywhere. <laughs> yeah, somehow he said the right things not to be holdable. Right. That's the thing is a psychiatric hold can only occur if you're immediate harm to yourself or others. If he had sobered up and he, you know, denied suicide or wanted yeah, to. Yeah, I want to get out of here. Yeah. You guys are a bunch of assholes. I'm, you can't right. help keep me. I know my rights. That's right. They can't. And uh, no. that's, but the, but anybody who deals with alcoholics knows that's alcoholic bullshit and they will bring him <laughs> in and, and uh, try to get him where his brain is working right. So, uh, all right. Yeah, because last weekend he literally crashed his car and was pulled over by a tow truck. He was driving on just rims and a shattered windshield. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, he's, I'm he's, at my wit's end. <laughs> he, well, there's a program called Al-Anon you may want to hang mm-hmm. out at a little bit to help people who are dealing with alcoholics, family members, loved ones, because it's not a battle you can fight by, by yourself. As I always tell everybody, the you ever seen The Little Shop of Horrors? Yeah. Yeah, the, the plant, the Audrey 2, is a perfect model for alcoholism, which is if you go near it, you go in the plant, unless you have somebody there pulling you out. You're part of the disease when you're around it. It, go, it eats you up, even though it does, it, nobody's consciously engaging. It's just the nature of the condition, okay? Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, too. Thanks. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get emotional. Well, it's, it's an emotional thing. It, it, you're in the vortex, and it, it sucks you up, and it's very painful. It's hard to see people dying of a disease that you know is caused by an external substance. It's really hard. Yeah, it's unreal. Well, I yeah. appreciate you both very, very much. All right, Christine. You You're welcome. Check it out. Thank you. Maybe get him to a meeting. Maybe we can pull him. Don't, yeah. I don't want you doing that necessarily because that won't work. But get him around a meeting somebody to re- or get somebody who's in recovery to reach out a hand, warm hand to him, a nice warm handshake, and see if they can pull him into the program. Uh, drugs you're seeing on the, on the hospital? Opiates mostly, benzos. Yeah, I'm out in the. I'm in the valley. We yeah. see a lot of meth. Meth. Yeah, yeah meth is meth. back. Meth, meth is, is back. Very, very, very. Yeah, bad. it's back, and it's bad with opiates, which mm-hmm. is an impo- just because they're so paranoid and agitated, it's impossible to treat them for the drug addiction. Yeah, it's awful, and you know what always surprises me, and you know, you're an expert on addiction, you know, but it's the people that come in, you just don't expect it. A lot of times we're seeing these people that are just wor- working, and someone says, "Hey, at work, if you want to stay up and do that extra shift." have a hit of this, and the next thing they know, they're addicted to math. It's That's kind of how it happens. That's, that's well, what, no, no, that's, no. That's a big, big abbreviated version. That's their, version. Yeah, that's that's their, their story. story. Of course, there's but a usually, little... usually they were smoking pot and drinking and kind of on the way already. Of course, and there's psychological thing. factors yeah. and family factors right. and all of that. I'm that's just right. saying that. But you're right. You could be a truck driver. It, you could be a factory worker. Exactly. And that's why I tell people, they go, what, what triggers addiction? Sometimes bad luck. Somebody, right. Sometimes you're a truck driver and somebody hands you meth, and it works. And yeah. you're you're sort of inclined that way, and off you go. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm interested. that, that Are they smoking it? Are they? Smoking yeah, it, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. It, it, yeah. That, a lot of the homeless people is, is meth and heroin right now. Right. And the, the cops were telling me, they go, how come they, where, everywhere they're taking apart bicycles? Like, that's meth. They, they have, you take apart your TV, yeah, you take apart yeah. your radio. That's just what meth does to yeah. your brain. We don't know why. They, they're looking for something inside that's mm-hmm. talking to them or mm-hmm. who knows what the paranoia is. They don't know half the time. So, 
It's you, can scary, you, scary stuff. Were you able to refer them out, or will they get take treatment? Is there treatment available? Or? You know, it's again the hospital system. It's so yeah. it's so in and out. You give them the resources, but you can't make someone do something they don't want to do. Yeah. So. So by way of wrapping up, what, what else do you want to get people to know? What, what things are, do we not cover that you want people to be sure to be aware of, to be thinking about, to be educated about? I mean, obviously the HPV vaccine. Yeah. We're, we're both on that. Emergency contraceptives. Yes. Um, I'm a big fan of that if you're not on some – and by the way, if you're using emergency contraceptives repeatedly – that means you need to see your gynecologist. I always say it's plan B for a reason yeah. because you need plan A. Yeah. You get plan A in place. Uh, and uh, and anything about n- new contraceptives or anything people should look forward to or things that are out there that I'm always, like I said, I'm always a big proponent of longer term stuff. Talk to your doctor about longer term contraceptive, especially if you're young and you're active, then Talking you're going to have yeah, implants, mm-hmm. IUDs, like something that's there that you don't have to think about so that you're not having to go get the plan B. Favorite it's there. IUDs? Um, it depends on the person. It's so multifactorial. It depends on a person's lifestyle and what their needs are. That's why it's important to talk to your doctor about all your options. And something that I always say is what worked for you in high school may be different for you in college, later in life, after you've had babies. So birth control is something you always want to revisit. Talk about what your life plans and goals are and see what works best for you. And just be aware of progesterone's protein effects. Yes, I've even seen yes. systemic effects from the uh, – Marina, is that what it's yeah, called? Yeah, Marina. Marina's with a pro, pro, progesterone-impregnated uh, mm-hmm. uh, IUD. Uh, are we ever going to see a male birth control pill? I know that's more of a it's, urological issue. Yeah, but. it's not my uh, forte, but I am keeping up with it. And there's some great stuff that they're looking at. And hopefully that will be something that happens. What are they doing? Paralyzing the sperm mostly, or are they actually? Um, there's the paralyzing the sperm, and then there's one that works more on on male hormones. But really? then that becomes kind of an issue. Yeah. There's a progesterone one, so it's it's Ugh. interesting. It's interesting stuff. We're gonna start to see all. It'd be cool though, I think, for Is someone else to take the responsibility. Propecia like stuff. Is that one of the things they were kind of looking? Yeah, at? like kind of like an anti testosterone thing. All right. Well, listen, I really appreciate you being here. I haven't talked to a gynecologist in a long time, and I appreciate the willingness to sort of go across all this wide landscape with us. We do appreciate it. Thank you, and yeah. People can find you again, Twitter at Perry yes. underscore MD, at Dr. Perry, D-O-C-T-O-R, and Dr. Again, spelled out Perry, P-A-R-I dot com is the website. What can they find at the website? Um, lots of GYN, women's health facts, lots of commonly asked questions, periods, birth control, pregnancy stuff, kind of anything you want to know. Periods and birth control, yeah. all that good stuff. <laughs> all right, you guys, uh, thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Mm-hmm.